I'll be reading from Psalm 66. Psalm 66. This psalm is one of praise to God for all the things that he has done. And in the sermon here shortly, Steve will be preaching about Jacob. And you see in the life the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the tribe of Israel, and even in our own lives, God is continuing to fulfill the promises that he has made, starting with the one at Abraham. And for these, God is worthy of praise. Psalm 66. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds towards the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You have brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals. With the smoke of the sacrifice of rams, I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Come and hear, all you who fear God, and I will tell what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened, but... Truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. And if you would, just keep your Bibles there. I'd like to read those last two verses together. 60 chapters, uh, Psalm 66, 19 and 20. Together. But truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. If you will turn back to Genesis chapter 35. Genesis chapter 35, and our text this morning is from the first 15 verses of chapter 35. 
There are times and places in each of our lives when deeply significant things have happened. And the place, the experience, the event is just permanently etched into our minds. So much so that when we have the opportunity to go back to that place, we relive the experience of a previous time in that place. And I'm sure we all have those places that vary, maybe in significance and importance. But in each of those experiences, we have an encounter, in this case with God, that we know marks out who we are, who we are becoming, and how we're going to finish up. We just don't know how it's going to come out. What we do know is that we have encountered God and things are different. We have changed. We've been confronted with something. We've become aware of something. We have come to know God in a way that we had not previously known Him. And it leaves a deep imprint on our lives. I think of, of two in my own journey specifically. One of them back on the little backcountry roads of Stanton. A little road called Barterbrook Road, a little white church, a small prayer room nearly 36 years ago as a young teenager uh, for years already resisting the call of God in my life, really wanting to be a Steve-ordered world, wanting to live in a Steve-ordered world, wanting to manage my circumstances, my outcomes, my dreams, wanting to be sure I could fulfill those, wanting to be able to chart out my own course. And that night in that little room, I said, that's part of a disordered world. Jesus, I surrender to the way you want to order my life, you made me. I rightfully belong to you. You are king. I will finally stop resisting and I'll say yes to who you are. And I'll never forget those 30, 45 minutes that I spent there with a man who, you know, led me through the sinner's prayer, but it was so much more than that. It was an honest assessment of all that was broken, of all that Jesus was and was offering to those who were broken. And he says, come to me, all you who are weary, you're thirsty, you're hungry, come. And that night, I remember walking out of that room, being met by an uncle. And the uncle looked at me, he said, Steve, you look so different than you did when you walked in there. And I walked in with a heavy heart, crushed with the weight of guilt and shame. I walked out in the freedom of forgiveness. Guilt gone, hope, a new life born. And I knew it was significant. I did not know how. And I would say that night, the mission of Jesus in the world, why he came, shaped who I was to become. It was t 10 years later we landed on an airplane into the little island of Ireland. And I knew that was going to have a significant influence on who I would become. Away from home, away from a familiar culture, away from a familiar job, from away from people I knew and had grown up with. It was all brand new. And I knew I would not be the same the next time I went back to my home community. I had no idea how. And one of our children said to me recently, 
I don't think we probably realize how deeply those years in Ireland shaped who we have become. And they're absolutely right. I didn't know, and I still don't know, but every time I land back in Ireland, I see in new ways what it is that God has been up to and how the work of Jesus through his church has been deeply shaped in my understanding because of my experience and years there. As a young guy trying to plant a church, didn't have a clue what to do. Yeah, not a clue. No training, no preparation, just ignorant as could be. Only training I had was growing up in a pastor's home, which incidentally, some of you know I call Conservative Anabaptist Seminary. Okay. Some of you will get that. I've had a chance to go back to that room in the church several times. And when I go back, two things just come to the front of my thinking. One is what God did then, what he promised then. But now I see that in light of what has transpired since then. And so when I go back to Barterbrook, I remember Barterbrook 36 years ago but I remember 36 years as well. And it's not all been pretty. I honestly, that night, I thought I'd be a perfect saint from then on till I died. I, I, that's what I thought. I thought I was done with sin. I was pretty much going to be a Christian now, and Christians were perfect people. Oh, did God crush that one. But that's what we just read in the Psalms. God has been faithful, but not in a safe kind of way. He's crushed us. He's bruised us because we're so much less than what he's wanting us to become. The story of Jacob, Jacob's first visit that night, probably 25, 30 years before, alone, fleeing from his brother, afraid for his life, and he's sleeping that night out in the wilderness with his head on a stone, wondering, am I really going to make it that 500 miles to Uncle Laban's house? Am I going to survive, or is Esau going to catch up with me and take my life? And that night, God appears to him and says, Jacob, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to go with you to where you're going, and I will bring you back. You're going to come back to this place again. And I'm going to be with you until you do. I promise you. I'm going to bless you. So just think about all that's happened to Jacob. Okay, That's somehow called blessing. And I'm going to prosper you. I will make of you a great nation. And Jacob said... If that's you, God, then I'm going to submit to you. I'm going to worship you. I'm going to give you the first tenth of everything I have. If you bring, if you bring me back again safely, I'm going to worship you. Now we say, well, that's a pretty shallow view of God and man, right? He's kind of dickering, bartering with God. And eventually we learn you don't do that. It's, yes, God, 
Okay, but he's still there, and we still are there too, probably, most of us, sometimes. We know the story of Jacob all the way to Haran. He's coming back now, two wives, two maidens, a bunch of children, a massive herd, flocks. We know the story of Laban, the restoration of Esau, We've just his, his reconciliation with Esau. We've just looked at that. And last Sunday, we saw the horrific events at Shechem. And we're wondering, Jacob, what's going on? And I want you to notice, we read this passage. I didn't note it last Sunday, but in chapter 34, the name of God is not mentioned one time. And may I just suggest, chapter 34 is a picture of a Jacob-ordered world. This is when, when we order our lives ourselves, that's the kind of stuff that happens. Chapter 35, this first section of chapter 35 is filled with the action of God. It's filled with a recognition of God. It's filled with references and allusions to God. You might say God just saturates chapter 35, verses 1 through 15. And I want you to note specifically, God is El. In Hebrew, it's the term El. And then there's Elohim, uh, which was Lord, a common one. But we have here a different reference to God, God the Almighty One. We have Bethel, which is house of God. We have Israel, which is has wrestled with God and prevailed. There's just references to God all through this passage. And I want you to notice Jacob's posture in response, both then toward God and toward his household, as God steps back into Jacob's world and says, okay, Jacob, it's time to go back to Bethel. Go back to Bethel. Because that night when Jacob met God, God met Jacob, he saw the angels ascending and descending on the ladder with God standing at the top. He named the place Bethel, Bethel, house of God. Truly, God is in this place. And we reference this again the last couple of sermons. Was Jacob given the word back in Haran, Jacob, go back to Bethel? Again, many Bible scholars believe he was. He was told, go back to Bethel, and he's still just dabbling around all over Palestine without getting back to Bethel. Okay, I can't argue that clearly from Scripture. What we do know, he gets the direct word now. Jacob, Bethel. And Jacob is, yes, sir. Genesis 35, verses 1 through 15. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. <clears throat> so Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has, <clears throat> pardon me, has been with me wherever I have gone. He's remembering. He's remembering Bethel. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, 
a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is, Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him where he fled, when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Elon Bekuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall you be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. This is very early in God's redemptive work calling out a of calling out a people through whom he would put his glory on display, through whom he would bless the nations. This is very early in the process. Jacob is generation three. There was Abraham, there was Isaac, and now there's Jacob. Jacob now has 12 sons, and this, in the course of redemptive history, is a big, big moment. Because now we're going from one man to whom God is speaking and through whom he is blessing the nations now we're going to 12. Jacob's sons, two grandsons. And it'd be interesting to discover why that little shift takes place. Not just the 12 sons, 10 sons and two grandsons. But God's purposes are still being established. They're still being worked out. God is true to his promise. He wants to bring blessing to the world. And we know ultimately that this household... This new people, Israel, is not going to get it done. They're going to fail. They're going to fail to be the people of God in the most stunning and remarkable ways. But it will be through this people that God brings the one who fulfills the mission, fulfills the purpose, and that is his son, Jesus. This story, in a sense, wraps up a specific section of Genesis. We have uh, two little wrap-up sections on the end that kind of closes up the official life of Jacob and Esau before we go into the life of Joseph. And yet, it's deeply significant because it takes place right back where God met Jacob the first time. The story wraps up Jacob's return from exile. Okay, and again, it's the story of humanity's return from exile. It's Jacob's story of return from exile. And then there's this little short circuit inside Canaan where he's also gone into exile and it's coming back. And you just note that theme throughout all of Scripture. And if you pay any attention to your own biography, you're going to see that same little journey taking place. God calls you out of Egypt to redeem you, and then you find yourself going back into exile. 
because you've refused to obey the Lord. You find yourself slipping back into a self-ordered world. And God has to break in again and say, wake up, wake up. Back to Bethel, back to the house of God. You're wandering around in Shechem and all kinds of things are happening in Shechem that are not reflective of a well-ordered world, a God-ordered world. So in this redemptive work of God, there is a work in all creation, but he's also doing individual rescues. And it's through the individual rescues of God's people that he is redeeming and effecting this larger rescue. Individuals meet God. Individuals surrender to the purposes of God in their lives so that the work they do in the world becomes the work of God in the world and not their own work, not their own agenda. And it is through this individually, individual restoration work of the human creatures that he builds a new society through whom the kingdom of God is being advanced. But we also say, we come back to Bethel, but we don't have to look far and we realize it's still not finished. So we hope, we anticipate, and we long for a final full redemption that's coming someday in the future. So there are Bethels and there are returns to Bethel. But there was also Eden and a final full return to the new heavens and the new earth where it's finally, fully, completely going to be resorted out and there will be no more wanderings. There are days we long for that day. There are seasons of life when we long for that final sorting out. And in the midst of a world that is increasingly just unraveling in violence, folks, we need to remember that ultimate hope. And we need to announce it to our neighbors and friends. This is worth sorrowing over. This is worth grieving over. It's worth working against this kind of violence. But we have no hope that it's going to get sorted out until Jesus finally finishes up what he started on Calvary. He is going to finish it. He is going to get done. It's not merely Bethel to Bethel. It's also Eden to the new heavens and the new earth. And things will be very good again. Let's look at this life-changing encounter with God. Jacob had it at Bethel, and now he's going back. These life-changing encounters that all of us must have if we're to be a part of the work of God in the world and to be a part of his new society and to be a part of his eternally good purposes in the world. For some, Bethel is as dramatic as the birth of a new child. For some, it's far less dramatic. It's more like the dawning of the sun. The daylight breaks over us and we begin to see what we didn't previously see. And then finally we say, well, what's this all about? I'm seeing things differently. And then the sun itself rises. And we come to the realization that we are not at the center of the universe. It's actually the sun. The son of God. So whatever your experience is, whether it's kind of a Pauline road to Damascus, or whether it's this awakening of a new dawn, a new era, 
you must encounter God if you're going to be a part of this new society. For Jacob, it was fairly dramatic. I think many of us know a level of fear before we finally surrender in faith to the Lord. I've talked to many young people and older people who have had a bit of time between their initial surrender of faith, and they said, you know, I'm not really sure about my initial motivation for becoming a Christian. Uh, the preacher was preaching on hellfire, and my heart was pounding like a, you know, so I was terrified I was going to die and go to hell, and so I, I quickly just prayed the sinner's prayer. Well, I think we wonder, too, about the long-term effects of that sort of conversion, but believe me, there are right reasons to be afraid. There are legitimate reasons for us to be afraid when we're facing that weight and burden of guilt. Hell is real. God is going to deal with sinners through a final judgment. And we ought to be afraid if we're not in Christ. But, you know, it's not enough to sustain a very fulfilling life of worshiping Christ. I worship Jesus because I'm so afraid of what's back here. Uh, it's not much of a life. So we do need to grow up. We do need to mature. We need to find loves being cultivated, not just fears motivating us to flee. Okay, so Jacob is fleeing for his life. He's absolutely terrified. His brother, his twin brother, said, I'm going to kill you. That's good reason to go. Mama, Mama says, better go. Daddy, who's in the camp with brother, says, hey, you better go. Right? It's serious. Fear is not fiction in this case. It's real. So he goes. In the midst of that fear, he encounters God. And it was a life-changing, reordering thing. And as we've noted, Jacob didn't get it all kind of fixed right then. It's pretty messy. Now God says, Jacob, back to Bethel. And notice that the words are very simple. Arise, Go up, dwell there, make an altar. Very direct language. And there are many times we wish God would give us that kind of black and white direct language about other circumstances, and he doesn't. But here he does. Very direct language. Arise, go up, dwell there, make an altar. And this is the first and I think only reference that God tells any of the patriarchs to build an altar. And there are just a number of things that kind of advance in this communication between God and Jacob. You see, God's dealing with some pretty um, people who don't know much about him. We have the privilege of knowing more, if we will. Just because we have it doesn't mean we do. Okay, And we need to rid ourselves of the idea that we kind of know the Bible. Most of us here don't. I would include myself in that rank. Don't know it very well don't know God very well. Okay, it's time to wake up and say, it's a problem. It was a problem for Jacob. But he responded in the ways he knew God, and God continued to disclose himself to him. And God is unfolding himself and his purposes, piece by piece, to the patriarchs, to the nation of Israel, finally through his son, and now to the people of God, the church. When Jacob gets this message from God, it seems as though he acts immediately, and he says to his family, you know, you wish he'd have said something to his family back in chapter 34. You wish he'd have said something to his sons in chapter 34. 
The only thing he had was this whimper. Ah, you made me stink around. All the people around me are going to loathe us because of what what you've done. Kind of a self-pitying whimper. Now God has spoken clearly and Jacob speaks clearly. And he says, get rid of your foreign gods. Almost in direct, direct style. He says, get rid of your foreign gods. Purify yourselves. Change your clothes. Uh, What did all that mean in that culture? I don't know that we know. We do remember Rachel had gods that came from Haran. Jacob has done nothing with them before. He's let her keep them. And maybe that's why he was reluctant to go back to Bethel. Can you imagine carrying your gods knowingly to God? Carrying your gods your things, your stuff, before God. It has a way of kind of reordering all these other deities. It has a way of kind of crushing them. So if you're going to come before God, you better get rid of the gods. So he says to his family, get rid of all those foreign gods. They've got to go. We're going to Bethel. And you may not know what happens at Bethel. I know what happens at Bethel. God shows up. Don't want them around. Get rid of them. And so they bring their gods. They bring their earrings, which some scholars believe were probably things collected at Shechem. When they looted the pagan towns, they had all this jewelry that represented the pagan world in which they were living, and they said, it's got to go. Change your clothes, possibly even clothes that were stolen from Shechem, clothes defiled by the violence and shedding of blood in Shechem. We can't go to God like that. Jacob knows this stuff, and he tells his family this is the way it is. They change their clothes. They purify themselves. They bathe. That's a part of it. They bring their idolatrous jewelry. They bring the idols that they've been carrying from Haran, and Jacob buries them under a tree. Been interesting. Makes you wonder what the family's thinking. What's going on with dad now? They're about to find out about Bethel. And then they pack up and head up to Bethel, likely an increase in elevation of about a thousand feet, a distance to travel. And remember, they've just terrorized the neighborhood. Jacob's afraid that they're going to be crushed and destroyed. But God allows the terror or causes the terror to reside on the towns. Now, how's that for God taking a horrible situation and doing something good with it? Okay, there is nowhere in Scripture that you get the idea that God tells his people, listen, why don't you terrorize the pagans around you so they leave you alone? Now, it's totally against his purpose. It's not the way he works. And yet once they have done this foolishness, they've terrorized the towns around Shechem, God says, okay, we're going to use that terror to protect them on their journey to, back to Bethel. And, and somehow God takes some of our worst bloopers, even the evil that we contribute to the world, and he has a way of being God enough to salvage it and to use it for good purposes. 
It's one of the most remarkable characteristics of a God who's working to reconcile all things to himself. So they're able to make this journey. I don't know if they're looking behind them all the way or not. But they literally get past all these towns and villages. They're protected. They're not pursued. They come safely to Bethel. And you know how often we're terrified on our journeys back from exile because of some of the things we've done? The fear that comes into our hearts because we know what some of the consequences might be of our foolishness. But can I tell you something? I think one of the consistent messages of Scripture is you have every right to be terrified unless you're on the journey of repentance. If you're on the way back to Bethel, you're abandoning the old and you're on your way back to the worship of God, God is helping you at that point. And he's standing against all who oppose you. If you, however, are opposing God, he himself will stand in your way. The proverb writer makes that very clear. But if you're on your road to repentance, you're on the way back to the worship of God, God clears the pathway. Jacob is on the way back. He clears the pathway. He arrives in safety. And then they worship. God reiterates the, the change of names. And this was another one of Jacob's big moments when he wrestled with God by the river Jabbok. And that has to come back when God says to him, Jacob, it's no longer Jacob the deceiver. You're now known as the man who wrestled with God and prevailed. Let's leave that mark on your history. Let's just do away with Jacob the deceiver. He iterates, God reiterates the promise made to Abraham. We've noted that already. I will bless you. I will make of you a nation. I will give you this land. And he adds another line. Kings will come from your body. Don't read that previously. It's this unfolding revelation of God to his people. And the things that mark Jacob's first visit to Bethel mark his second one. He erects a stone. He anoints the stone with oil. This time he also offers a drink offering. And he calls the place not just Bethel, but El Bethel, God. And the house of God. This is not now just the house of God. God is here himself in his house. Bethel bookends kind of the, the redemptive story of Jacob. Jacob's life isn't over. Unlike Isaac, his father, who never left the promised land, Jacob went back to Haran, where Abraham comes from, and we find that in the next, next chapters, he's going to be the one who leads his family into Egypt, where the big story of return from exile the exodus will take place. In conclusion here, there are Bethels and returns to Bethel for all of God's people. What is God's call to you today? Are you fleeing in fear and God is longing to meet you at a place that you will call Bethel? God is here.
where he's inviting you to mark out that place where you say, Lord, I'm tired of the fear. I'm weary of carrying the guilt. I'm tired of just carrying the burden of shame that just marks so deeply who I am. And I realize it's the way I've ordered my life. And whenever I seek to order my life in my way, the result is always guilt, shame, and fear. I'm going to let it go. And I'm going to trust to your mercies that you're going to receive me, that you're going to be my God, so that I can be your child, I can be your son. Do you need to mark out that Bethel today? For many of us here, we have our Bethels, but there's been some chaos. We've wandered far from Bethel, as we are wont to do. And it's time to go back. The wandering has taken us into perilous places. We've encountered evil, not just of the pagans, we've encountered our own. The idolatrous world has crept into our lives and into that of our households. And it's time to clean up. It's time to get rid of idols. It's time to get rid of the trappings and the clothes stained by sin. It's time to bury them under the tree and go back to Bethel. There's a need to go back to Bethel for renewed cleansing, for renewing our vows and renewing our worship. And God is calling all of you everyone in this room, to Bethel or El Bethel. Will you come to the house of God? Some of the saddest words in scripture, Israel is facing a crisis with the Assyrians. And Isaiah records this, the message of God to Israel was, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and confidence, in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling. Some of you are unwilling. And may God be merciful to you. As he calls you to Bethel or El Bethel. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, in the stillness of these moments, we identify very closely with Jacob, who, driven by fear, finally bowed his heart to you and came to a sense of rest that you would go with him. Who, though he had your promises, wandered and failed and struggled, battled against his old habits of deception and lying, of manipulating others for his own ends, you are still saving him. And just as you did to him, you're inviting us back to Bethel. Lord, work in us in such a way that we are willing and ready 
to lay these things aside that hinder us to abandon the idols of our hearts and go back to Bethel. We ask it for Jesus' sake, as our Redeemer, as our Lord, as the one King. Amen.